Turn your, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27. And we are going to be studying God's Word this morning as we travel to the cross. Matthew chapter 27. Starting in verse 11. And as you turn there, I will give you a heads up for where we're going the next couple weeks. We are going to spend a couple Sundays on the crucifixion. I don't want to hurry through these passages. Uh, The cross stands at the very center of our faith, uh, and we need to understand it. Uh, Why is the cross so important? Uh, So for the next couple weeks, we're going to be focusing on the crucifixion, and then uh, on As it so happens, Easter Sunday, we will be focusing on the resurrection, Matthew chapter 28. Read with me Matthew 27, starting in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his his wife sent a word to him, uh, saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy him. The governor again said to them, Which of the two of you do do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Father, we ask that as we come into this holy text, that you would speak to us, that you would awaken faith within our hearts. God, we need it this morning. It is so easy to grow cold throughout the week. It is so easy to forget the warmth of the gospel. God, together as we gather as, as this church, I pray that we would, as one body, be warmed by the flames of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that we would not reject Christ, turn from Him, hide from Him. I pray that we would not turn to ourselves, but that we would flee to Christ, that we would find ourselves in Christ, that we would be warmed, that we would experience Him this morning through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the San Diego Supreme 
superior, rather, court, uh, there were two men who were being tried for armed robbery on the stand, sitting behind the defendant's desk. And on the stand was an eyewitness. And the prosecutor chose his words carefully and moved slowly, and he asked the eyewitness if she saw the armed robbery, and she said yes. And he said, uh, did you see what happened after? And she said that they fled in a car. The prosecutor asked her, did you see who was driving the car? And she said, absolutely, it was two men. And the prosecutor, looking around the room, boomed, are these two men here in court today? And sealing their own fate, the two men raised their hands. What do you do with your guilt? You can pretend you don't have any guilt. You can lie about it. You can hide. But your guilt seems to find a way out of you, doesn't it? What do you do with your guilt? That's what I want to talk about today. What do you do with your guilt? What do you do when you know you're wrong? We are in this story of uh, the... The crucifixion, the story of Christ leading to the cross. And here what we see is that Jesus is brought and tried by sinful men. Such irony there. The innocent one tried by a sinner. And then we see that the one who tries him, Pilate, has this sort of vain approach of just dealing with his own guilt. Look at it in verse 29. Or verse 24, rather. Pilate says, it says he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. I believe that we have to find some way to vindicate ourselves when we feel guilty. And I think what we see in this text is the whole scope of, of the human condition and how humans find all sorts of ways to not have to deal with their guilt. But at the same time, we come face to face with the one whose blood can make us clean. Before we get into that, I just want to look at the story here. I want to walk through it together. Jesus has been betrayed. He has been betrayed by a kiss, the common sign of a friendship. With that kiss, he was arrested. Taken to stand before Caiaphas, the high priest, who was an illegal trial under the cover of night. They find ways to condemn him. False testimonies are sort of strung together in such a way that they think they got something that can work and they condemn Jesus to death. Only one problem, the Jews have no jurisdiction over the death penalty. They have to go for that to Rome, to the Roman authorities. So we see in verses 1 and 2 of this text that they take him then to Pilate, because Pilate has to okay the death penalty for Jesus. So they stand before Pilate. Now in verse 11, Pilate here, he's called a governor, which is a general term for a ruler. Pilate is a people pleaser. Pilate is a politician. Don't let his seeming, seeming innocence fool you. 
Jesus stands now before Pilate. And Pilate asks Jesus this question, are you the king of the Jews? You've got to remember, Jesus is being tried now as an insurrectionist. Someone who's about to create a rebellion. So he asks the question, are you a king of the Jews? Now, this is a loaded question, isn't it? Because if Jesus says, says yes, he seals his own fate. But if Jesus says no, he lies. Jesus' response is, is really less of a, an answer and more of just affirming the confession that Pilate just made. His response is simple. He says, as you said. Those are the only words that Jesus utters. He remains silent the rest of the trial. The false witnesses come against him and they bring their accusations against him and he simply remains silent. You can see Pilate's response to that. Pilate says, are you not going to say anything to this? Don't you hear how many things they testify against you in verse 13? Aren't you going to say anything at all? Now you've got to understand, in Roman law, according to Roman law, a witness's testimony had a huge, bear a huge weight in uh, the decision of the court. So for a witness to just remain silent is really to seal their own fate. Now Jesus remained silent. If Jesus would have opened his mouth and defended himself, he would have been acquitted. Jesus seals his own fate through remaining silent. What do we see here? We see Jesus who is committed to the mission of willingly heading to the cross. Nothing will deter him from what he came to do. So he remains silent, <clears throat> says absolutely nothing. Now Pilate in this story, we can tell that he doesn't really want to crucify Jesus. You know, again, he's, it's not because he loves Jesus. It's because he's a people pleaser. He's, he's a politician. He doesn't want to make the wrong decision. And he can't find anything wrong with Jesus. We see uh, that he, he, he recognizes that their own motive is wrong. In verse 18, he says, it says he knew it was out of envy that they delivered him up. He knew why they were bringing Jesus. He could tell. He, he could, in their false testimonies against him, he could, he could kind of read through all of that. Also, Matthew gives us another little detail. Pilate's own wife had a dream. And she says in verse 19, I've suffered much because of this man in my dream. And then she says, stay away from him. Stay away from that righteous man. His wife had this vision, had this dream, this epiphany. And, and we don't know all the, all the details of what it meant for her to suffer much, but she didn't like it. It was a nightmare. And so she warned Pilate, stay away from that man, that righteous man. And so for these reasons, Pilate doesn't want to crucify him. John gives us a little more details as to what actually happened here. John, uh, uh, Pilate first sent Jesus back to Herod, or to Herod, to have him tried by Herod, the supposed king of the Jews. Now, Herod also just couldn't find anything wrong with him. Herod just wanted to be entertained by Jesus. Herod then sends Jesus back to Pilate because he can't find anything wrong with him. So Pilate now receives Jesus back into his own authority, and he has to figure out what to do with him. Now, there was this this uh, tradition that they had around Passover season in Jerusalem. 
Paschal am Amnesty. It was a tradition in which, according to one ancient Jewish source, a lamb would be sacrificed, and due to the slaughter of that lamb, one prisoner would be allowed to go free. It was somewhat of a substitution. It was a redemption price. It was a tradition that they had to show the, the value of the sacrificial lamb. And so Pilate evidently remembers this tradition, and he says, ah, here's what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to get rid of, get this off of my hands. I'm going to use this. And so Pilate pulls out a, a man named Barabbas. Now Barabbas is an insurrectionist. He's probably some popular hero sort of insurrectionist that was a rebel against the Roman Empire, and, and at some point in this insurrection, he's actually killed a man, we've, we, we learn in other places. So he pulls Pilate out and sets, uh, I'm sorry, Barabbas out and sets Barabbas next to Jesus, and he says, okay, which one do you want? We're going to use this Passover tradition, and due to the sacrifice of a lamb, one prisoner will go free. Choose which one you want. The crowd shouts, Barabbas, probably to Pilate's surprise. Pilate then asks the crowd, so what do you want to do with this Jesus who is called the Christ? Mark tells us that three times they shout, crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. What is Pilate going to do, this people pleaser, this politician? As he sees, it says, he's not gaining any ground. And as a riot begins among the crowd, Pilate makes his decision. Verse 24, so Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing. But rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Which sounds, by the way, very passive, but this, we, this, this actually is Pilate turning him over to crucifixion. Let's not let Pilate off the hook here. We see that clear in other Gospels. This was him turning Jesus over to be crucified. Verse 25, and all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. They released for them Barabbas, having scourged Jesus, which, by the way, was a whip made with leather thongs on each thread was tied bone and metal. And they would whip the prisoner to prepare them for crucifixion. The whipping would tear their skin into a pulp and it, it would weaken the individual. We have no clue if it was actually uh, limited to 39 lashes, as we popularly think. Could have been more. People were often killed during this whipping. So Jesus here is scourged, scourged, whipped, and he is delivered over to be crucified. There's so much irony in this story, isn't there? An innocent man tried by sinful men and found guilty. A dangerous man set free. A man who's filled with love condemned to death. A crowd who's hostile. Pilate's wife who hides. Pilate himself 
who seeks to vindicate vindicate himself? What do we do with this? I want to ask you two questions as we walk through this text together. One, do you reject Christ? Two, do you run to Christ? I believe in this passage we see the whole scope of human nature. We see all of the various angles in which humans, given our own nature, reject Jesus Christ. And I want to examine our own hearts and ask ourselves this first question. Do you reject Christ? Romans chapter 1 is clear. Humans don't intrinsically run toward God. Humans intrinsically reject God. We run from God. We don't naturally uh, love God, but we, in and of our own selves and in our flesh, we hate God. This is human nature, and we see it here. We see it in the crowds. It's the crowds turn on Jesus. We see it, I believe, in Pilate's wife who wants to hide from Jesus, to turn away from Jesus. We see it in Pilate himself, Pilate, who just simply tries to take care of himself. Let me break it down to you in a couple different ways so we can kind of apply this and ask this, uh, these questions of ourselves. First, human nature turns on God. Second, human nature turns from God. Third, human nature turns toward self. Human nature turns on God. Let's examine that reality. I heard a couple years ago of a cheerleader who was killed, murdered, by another cheerleader and her mother. Together conspired against this young girl. Why? Jealousy. Envy. That stuff is real, isn't it? It gets you. I mean, you can almost hear one girl just seeing another girl who is uh, uh, beautiful and, and talented, and she says, oh, she's so gorgeous, she's so talented, she's so gifted, I hate her. And before we point fingers, how often have we seen that kind of hatred in our own lives? You know, the, 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 the person who we might respect, the person who we might uh, give honor to, the person who really excels in whatever it is that we like, we don't really respect them or give them honor. We envy them. We hate them. We wish that they were gone. And while many of us have not committed a murder, literally many of us have murdered in our own heart as we have envied others. I believe this is what's happening with the crowd as they come face to face with the holy. What do you do when you encounter the holy one? When you recognize that we are born sinners, we are born with guilt, and we come face to face with the holy, what do you do? Well, we see their response, the crowd's response. Pilate sees right through their accusations. He recognizes that they envy Christ. It's as if you're looking in the mirror and you see yourself. And then you see that one who is so beautiful, and it just makes you feel that much more ugly. What do you do about yourself? Well, many people just simply turn on the one 
that is beautiful. And here we see at the very heart of all, humans turning on Jesus Christ. I'm going to get my mic right at some point today. Look at verse 18. He knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Why would the people and the religious leaders envy Christ? Is it not because Christ has something that they wish they had, but they don't have? Beauty, innocence, holiness. They envy him probably for his popularity as well. Friends, listen, when you shine a bright light on those who are hiding in the dark, you are about to get yourself hurt. Now, many people don't realize that they have animosity toward Christ. I hear people all over society who say things like, I'm good with God. God's good with me. I got a unique relationship with God. Have you ever heard anybody say that? We're good. Anybody ever heard anybody say that? Or is it just me? I'm good with God. God we're good. We're good. I don't think we, we, we realize the hatred in our heart toward God. Meaning, if Jesus Christ was walking the streets of Baltimore, do you think our whole city would bow before him and embrace him and receive him? I mean, you would think that just walking around talking to people, what do you think of Jesus? Oh, we're good. He's cool. He's my homeboy, right? If Jesus was walking the streets of Baltimore, what would we do to him? We would what? Help me out here. We would kill him. We would crucify him. It's human nature. We want to destroy that which is beautiful, that which is holy, that which is right. We can't take it. We get this close to God. God in the flesh. And it's horrifying. It is terrifying for a sinner to get this close to God. And you have two options as a sinner. You could either repent, fall on your knees, and embrace Him as your Lord and Savior. Or you could destroy Him. Kill Him. And this is the response of the crowd. They turn on God. They turn on Christ. We also see here in this story that humans turn from God. We hide. Think of the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sin. They reject God. They rebel. And what do they do? They hide from Him. The God who created the garden, the God who created the whole world, they're going to play hide and go seek with Him for the rest of eternity. You can't hide from God, Adam. You can't hide from God, Eve. They can't hide from God. But if we don't turn on Him, I believe that humans will just simply try to hide from Him. Now where do we see this in the text? I think we see it with Pilate's wife. There are some theologians who 
try to present Pilate's wife as a disciple of Christ, as someone who had this epiphany, this dream, and, and she considers him a righteous man. Let me ask you this. Does a disciple of Jesus Christ say have nothing to do with that righteous man? Does that sound to you like a disciple of Jesus Christ? Have nothing to do with that righteous man? What does that sound like to you? Help me out. Hiding. Thank you. It sounds like hiding. It sounds like Adam and Eve. Yes, she believes that he's a righteous man. We'll give her that. She's had this epiphany. She's had a vision. She's had a dream. She was tormented by it. We don't know exactly what it was, but she was tormented by it. She recognizes and admits and even confesses that he is a righteous man, but her response is to hide from him. This is the response of the irreligious. If we can just kind of skirt by throughout through life, and, and maybe I can just kind of live my life outside of the sight of God. This is the response of Jonah, a religious man who is called to a mission that he wanted nothing to do with, and he would rather sit on the Mediterranean somewhere in Tarshish, sipping out of a coconut maybe. Maybe he could hide from God. How often in your own life you sense this, 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 this sense of uh, maybe I can just get by for a couple years without God seeing Man, if I, if, I could just, if I could just hide and do my own thing, live my own life, and not have to live before God. Listen, guys, in your flesh, in your humanity, the, the, the reality that, that God is ever-present is really annoying. Admit it. Admit it. In your flesh, it is really annoying that God sees everything. That God knows all your motives. That God knows all your hidden actions. Oh, if we could just hide. Like Pilate's wife wants to do. Just have nothing to do with this man. He is a dangerous man. Stay away. And so people try to hide. Shame. Shame keeps... Men and women from coming fully to Christ. Sometimes that's evident in just simply hiding from the church. In their vanity, someone might say, well, I've got nothing wrong with God. I just don't have any care for His local church. You can't hide from the body of Christ and not be hiding from Christ. You know, on the flip side, though, my prayer for our church is that we would have a culture here where hiders can be set free. I, I pray that we would have a transparent culture here. We're not pointing fingers at each other and just simply judging each other because you've been hiding, because you did the wrong. No, let's have a culture here among us where we can freely say, this is where I've been hiding, and I don't want to hide anymore where hiders are set free in the grace of Jesus Christ, where hiders can come into the body of Christ and find love and acceptance and warmth, warmth and a reintroduction to Jesus Christ. 
Thirdly, we see in this text that human nature turns to self. So on one hand, we might turn on God as the attacker. On the other hand, we might turn from God as in an attempt to hide. Or we could find ourselves living a life like Pilate, and we just simply turn to self. Let me read you this quote. I put it in your bulletins for you. This is from Anthony Carter. He says this, While the dirt may have been removed from his hands, Pilate's conscience could not be cleansed with water. Do you get that? While the dirt might have been removed from his hands, his conscience could not be cleansed by water. Ironically, the blood that he tried to wash away was the only blood that could have made him clean. Contrast that with Paul, who said that he served and worshipped God with a clear conscience. The difference is that Pilate proposed to wash the blood of Christ away from himself, while Paul knew himself to be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. What do you do with your guilt? What do you do with your guilt? Some turn on Christ. Some turn from Christ and try to hide. Some turn to themselves and in their own vanity they try to wash with water. What water are you trying to wash with in your own life? Washing your guilt with water is like trying to get oil paint off of your hands with water. Have you ever tried that? When I was a young 13, 14 year old or so, I, I painted uh, a, a uh, picnic table with oil paint, and I had oil paint all over my hands. And so I went into the house and I put some soap and, and was trying to wash the oil paint off with water. That's a frustrating experience, isn't it? It doesn't go anywhere. Water does not wash away your sin. What Pilate is trying to do is make himself feel better about what's nagging on his own conscience. But friends, water does not remove the stain of guilt. I wonder what kind of water you are trying to use in your life to wash away your guilt. Trying to wash your guilt with the water of being a a more loving spouse, a a better husband or wife. Trying to wash your guilt with the water of trying to be a better person or be a better friend or be a better roommate. You're trying to wash the guilt away with the water of success in your career. You're trying to cleanse your conscience with the water of being involved and active in the community. You're trying to wash your guilt away and cleanse your conscience through the water of activism. What water can wash away your sin? There is nothing we can do on our own to make ourselves ultimately feel even better about ourselves. It might last for a moment, but ultimately the guilt that just continues to nag. And it comes out. Guilt has a way to come out. What do you do with 
your guilt? What can wash away your sin? Answer, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood that was on Pilate's hands that he had to wash. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. Friends, let me ask you the second question. Do you run to Christ? Do you run to Him? Do you run to this fountain of blood where you might be washed? In the year 1818, Dr. Semmelweis discovered why so many young women were dying in childbirth. What he discovered was that doctors weren't washing their hands. They weren't washing. So he discovered this and for 11 years saw a lot of success in his own practice, saved many lives, and he spent the rest of his life lecturing, saying, giving one message. His message was this. I'm asking you only to wash. I'm asking you only to wash. What are we washed in? Jesus said, unless I wash you, you can have no part in me. Peter then in response to that said, what? Wash all of me. Then wash all of me. I'm asking you only to be washed. If that were only the message that were preached from every pulpit across the globe for the rest of our lifetimes. Just be washed in the blood of Christ. Be washed. I'm asking you to be washed in Him. I cannot stand before God without being washed by Christ. I cannot stand before God without being first stripped of myself, washed in His blood, and then only then, in Christ, covered in His blood, can I stand before God. Friends, Jesus is not a ticket to get you to heaven. What do you do with your ticket when you get into the stadium? What do you do with your ticket when you get into the stadium? When you get in, it's worthless. Jesus is not just a ticket to heaven. He is the whole of our eternity. I know there's no time in heaven as we know it, but after, for the lack of better words, a million years of being in heaven, we are still being saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. After 10 million years of being in heaven, I still can't stand before God on my own. For all of eternity, we stand in the blood of Christ, washed in His blood. Is His blood enough for you today? It is, and let me tell you why. A couple quick points from this text that remind us that His blood is enough. First, Christ is the sovereign sacrifice. He is a sovereign sacrifice. To quote C.S. Lewis in Narnia, He's the king, I tell you. He's the king. 
Listen, friends, if you were to sin against me, you have a, uh, an earthly Joel Kerr's kind of price to pay, the value of my life or whatever you took from me. If you sin against the Queen of England, it's treason. You've got the state against you. But what if you sin against the king of the universe? R.C. Sproul calls, calls this cosmic treason. Who can pay for the sins of one who sins against the king of the universe? The eternal king of the universe. What man, what woman can ultimately pay for this? Why is hell eternal? It's because there is no end to that payment. If any then is going to be freed from the consequences of sin and brought into heaven, how can God be both just and the justifier unless there is one who comes who can pay the price for my sin against the king of the universe? What we need is a kingly sacrifice. We need a sovereign sacrifice. In verse 11, man, this is so theological. Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? That is such a theological statement. And I believe Matthew's doing some theology here. In chapter 2, verse 2, we see the only other place in the entire gospel where Jesus is referred to as the king. In contrast with the king's of the earth. Jesus is born as the King of the Jews. And now Matthew bookends the beginning and the end of his book with a declaration that Jesus Christ is the King. He has a worthy sacrifice because He has a sovereign sacrifice. His blood is enough for you because it's kingly blood poured out for you. Shed on your behalf. Secondly, he is a substitutional sacrifice. And he is a spotless sacrifice. He is a spotless sacrifice. That's actually a theme through this whole story. I can't find anything wrong with him. His innocence is highlighted in this entire trial. Why? Is it to just simply make us upset and angry with people who wrongly condemned an innocent man? No, I don't think that's the point. The point is to show that Jesus did not die for one sin that he ever committed. If Jesus committed one sin, then he would have to die and pay the price for that sin. The only way that Jesus can, as the king, pay the price for the sins of others is if he has committed no sin himself. He's innocent. He's sinless. He is a spotless sacrifice. And only the spotless lamb can take on the sins of others. He is, as I said, the substitutional sacrifice. There's a lot of theological irony in all of this. We see Barabbas, this dangerous man who is set free, and Jesus, who is pure love, is condemned. We see this amnesty that is given to Barabbas. A a, a lamb, according to their tradition, would be sacrificed so that a prisoner would go free. There is so much theological irony in that, isn't there? Later on, we see that Jesus is crucified between two thieves, which could better be rendered two rebels, according to the Greek. 
the two rebels that Jesus was crucified with most likely were associates of Barabbas. Is it possible that there were three crosses that were already prepared for the crucifixion that is already to come, and one of those crosses is for Barabbas? It is quite possible that Jesus himself literally took the cross for Barabbas. Jesus is a substitutional sacrifice. He stands in your place. Where do you go to be washed? You walk in this morning with guilt nagging on your conscience. The guilt of of not doing well enough this week. The, The guilt of failing. The shame of making a mistake. You walk in this morning with guilt on your conscience. Friends, where do you go to be washed? How might we have a clean conscience? Let me ask you this question. Have you ever trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you ever pled the blood of Jesus Christ? Have you ever been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ? I don't need to prove to you guilt. I believe that we're born with guilt. I believe we're raised with guilt. And the longer we live, the more guilt we have in our life that we've got to do something with. Where do you go to be cleansed? You go to Jesus Christ. Don't run from Christ. Don't hide from Christ. Don't pretend like you can get by, skirt through life without Him noticing you. For what purpose? Don't turn on Christ. Don't point the blame at Christ. Don't accuse Christ. For what purpose would you do that? Don't turn to self and just simply try to wash myself with whatever I can do to make myself feel better. For what purpose? Listen, Christianity is not a a message of condemnation. Christianity is a message of forgiveness. Without Christ, we are left with condemnation. Don't let anybody tell you that Christianity is about condemnation. Christianity is the answer for the human problem. Christianity comes with the only solution for guilt. And that is found in Jesus Christ alone. Amen? Amen? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I only think one or two of you answered that question. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ crucified. What can wash away the pain of sin? Nothing but the blood of Christ. What can wash away the stain of racism, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can wash away the shame of sexual immorality, which we've fallen into once again, nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. What can wash away the sting of abortion, nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. What can wash the guilt of messing up? Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Is the blood of Jesus Christ enough for you today? 
Don't tell me that it's going to be enough for you in eternity if it's not enough for you today. Is the blood of Christ enough for you today? Don't tell me that it's going to be enough for you on Judgment Day if it's not enough for you today. Is the blood of Jesus Christ enough for you today? It is. Amen. Nothing but the blood. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He's enough. His blood is enough for you. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked. Come to Thee for dress. Helpless, look to Thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that the blood of Christ is enough. God, may we not turn on Christ. May we not turn from Christ. May we not turn to self. But may we come face to face with God incarnate. May we fall on our knees before Him. And may we be washed in His blood. Thank You, God, for not coming as judge alone. Thank You for coming as Savior. Thank You for the Christ who when He, when he could have defended Himself, when he could have got out of this and lived a long life, we thank you that Christ kept his mission on his mind. That he didn't forget why he came. And in these dark, horrifying hours, he willingly went to the cross to pay the price of sin. I pray that there is none in this room today who would not be a recipient of that salvation. It is in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.